Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose. Impact is where your unique best self meets the world and contributes to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Patty Dye. Patty is the author of eight books, including Life is a Verb, Creative is a Verb, and The Geography of Loss. She's the founder of Life is a Verb Camp, an annual gathering to explore courage, creativity, community, and compassion. And Patty's also the founder of The Art of Activism, an organization that provides online and live training on social justice and diversity and inclusion issues, including her online Hard Conversations book club. So welcome to the podcast, Patty. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I found a, a quote online, which you've, you've probably heard read back to you a number of times, but mm-hmm. it's, it's if, the Bo- if the Buddha had two kids, a dog <laughs> named Blue, a Southern accent, and a huge crush on Johnny Depp, his, her, his name would be Patty Dye. So I don't, I don't know, uh, if, I don't think Blue's still around, but, and your crush on Johnny Depp, I think, remains intact. But tell, <laughs> tell, tell us how you came to uh, be the Southern Buddha. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I don't know. It's a, a reviewer wrote that when Life as a Verb came out, and um, I was quite taken aback by it because it was never my intention to be <laughs> the, the Southern Buddha. Um, but I, I, you know, I think there's something inherent in my way of seeing the world and my way of approaching the world that is rather Buddhist. Uh, even though I, I'm not Buddhist, I identify really closely with the questions that that Buddha asked. As a matter of fact, I have uh, on my arm uh, my one middle age tattoo, <laughs> which uh, has three questions from Buddha. How well did you love? How fully did you live? And how deeply did you let go? Yeah, and yeah, and I, I think that's a really good uh, measures, measuring stick, a good yardstick for any life. Uh, you know, what will I answer to those three questions at the end of my days. Um, so the tattoo is just a reminder of that. And so there's a kinship. And actually, interestingly, I hadn't thought about this, um, but I studied when I was in high school as an exchange student in Sri Lanka, which used to be Ceylon. Mm. And the whole time there, I studied with Buddhist monks. So perhaps more than I realized, um, uh, stayed with me after that experience. Well, that's such a, I'm sure that was a really powerful uh, awakening in terms of, I mean, totally different culture and, and being in that space with people dedicating their lives to that kind of, of practice. So uh, I'm sure it had an effect. Um, is there, can you tell us a bit about, I mean, you've always been a writer, so you've written a lot of books and I know the the precipitating event that kind of brought about your first book. Can you tell us a bit about that and then how things evolved a bit from there? Yeah, actually it was my third book. I had written oh. two business I had written two business books before that. Okay. Uh, but I didn't feel a real uh, heart connection to those books when they arrived from the publisher, the business books. They were good and 
you know, they, they um, were about global diversity issues. So uh, pretty powerful. But when I got the books from the publisher, I, I saw the, the book and didn't feel a lot um, for those first two business books. So in 2005, when my stepfather was diagnosed with lung cancer, uh, I went down to my mom's house to help her with him, and he died 37 days later. And that was really shocking to me because it's such a short period of time between diagnosis and death. And I woke up on that next day saying to myself, what would I be doing today if I only had 37 days to live? And I knew that that at least one of the answers would be that I wanted to write down my stories for my two kids. And another was that I wanted to live a life so that at the end of it, when I got to day one of 37, I wouldn't say now I can go do what I want to do. You know, I wanted to be able to wake up that day and say, this is exactly the life that I wanted to live. So I had to change things in my life in order for that to be true, which I did. And I started writing the stories for my kids on a blog called 37 Days, which really gave me the opportunity to comb back through the stories of my life. I I think stories are really how we create our lives. Um, Comb back through those and try and figure out, you know, what what would I leave my kids with uh, as a result of having lived through that? And these were not the prettiest stories about me. You know, they weren't the, the, the brilliant sparkling resume stories. They were (laughs) the things that um, I was vulnerable about the things I feared, the things I had really messed up. Um, some things I had gotten right, but it was just the truth telling, I guess, of who I am as a person, not just as a mom. And, uh, so that took my life in a different direction. So the next six books were really born out of that, um, storytelling, truth telling, um, uh, quest, I guess. Well, the the stories that you tell really resonate with people. I mean, I I'm always amazed um, when I see you on Facebook. That I mean, you get hundreds of responses, and you regularly. I mean, it's not an unusual thing, and it's you've really been able to connect with and cultivate an incredible community of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons for the camp that you mentioned was. I wanted to be able to get together uh, all these people uh, from around the world who were all extraordinary in their own way, but had never met each other uh, to, to have a space where they could all come together and have these conversations, which is what camp is. And, you know, there's, there's definitely um, a feeling of community. And I actually did that camp as a kind of a, a test or an experiment in community. How do you, How do you build a thriving community? How do you sustain it? How do you uh, step back and let it grow? And so camp has been a great experiment in that regard. Um, And I think the reason the stories resonate is because they are, uh, well, two reasons. One, they were written with a single intention. A friend of mine who I used to work with talks about training young actors and saying to them when they first start their training, you, you know, you can... Um, you can either play Hamlet if you're in that play, or you can try and get the audience to love you, but you can't do both of those things at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you have to choose, you know, and a lot of people uh, try and get the audience to love them. And I didn't have that in mind. I I was really not aware of an audience when I started writing the story. So I think that the, the single intention 
with which I wrote the stories or have been writing the stories was one reason. The other is that I think writers need to leave space in their stories for readers to find themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there has to be, if you think about, um, let's say, rock climbing, you know, there has to, it can't be a slick surface. There has to be some hole, you know, somewhere for you to grab onto in order to make your way up the, the, the rock. And I think the stories that are successful are the ones that leave those spaces. Um, I don't feel like I have to tell my readers everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I feel like, um, oh, well, it's like watching a play. You know, if, if the actors are so slick and so, uh, tight that that I as an audience member don't have any space to insert myself. It's not a really uh, successful play. Um, you, you have to bring the audience along with you, you know. And a lot of the stories are the details are specific, but the themes are pretty universal. Right. You know, you can find you can find yourself in those. Mm-hmm. Well, I know this thread of diversity work has carried through all the work that you've done really and how how is that showing up these days i i know that you know these are uh interesting times as the chinese proverb says so i think Uh we're we're all being challenged and called to really look at issues like racism and diversity that we perhaps have been able to avoid before and i think it's it's really up in front of us now and so any work in that realm is really going to be bumping up against that and all the tension and the, the anger and the upset that goes along with it. How do you navigate all that? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've been doing that work for about 30 years. And um, the first two books that I mentioned were about global diversity issues from pretty much an academic point of view, you know, a, a business point of view, not, not a personal in the trenches point of view. But I have been doing that work. Um, and actually, Sri Lanka, as I mentioned earlier, was the genesis for that work. Here I go as a 16-year-old, very southern, small-town girl who's never been on an airplane before. I end up in a place as far away from my house as you could go without wow. coming back the other way. <laughs> you know? um, and what I realized was these people are just like me. I had a brother and a sister in the family I lived with, and the circumstances were different, but the core of who we were and what we cared about, what we loved, and what we laughed about was the same. And that was pretty revelatory for me at a at a, an age when I could dive into that and not, not feel fear about it, mm-hmm. about the differences. Um, and then, you know, I had other personal experiences uh, in college that led me to understand, uh, including living through the Greensboro Massacre uh, mm-hmm. when I was in college in wow. Greensboro in 1979, mm-hmm. that um, we need, we have work to do. I want to, I want to continue this work that I had heard so much about with the civil rights movement and, you know, it was clear to me in the in the 70s in Greensboro, this work it, is still vital. It's It needs to be done. So I've been doing it for a very long time. But when I started writing these more personal books, even though I know that they're infused with diversity messages, they weren't specifically focused on that. Uh, that changed in July of 2015 for me. Um when the the Charleston massacre took place in the church in Charleston. And I had all kinds of rage. My friend Lori Foley called it my summer of rage. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I was so uh, irritated and angry at people on my Facebook timeline who were saying things like, well, I don't see color. I'm colorblind. And it just brought me right back to 30 years earlier starting this work and trying to educate people. And I realized that I could either be angry or I could try and educate people. So that's what I chose. And that was the genesis for a series of online classes, the first of which was um, Hard Conversations, an Introduction to Racism. And I, it was a month-long class. I put it up the month after the Charleston massacre, just called on all the information and knowledge that I had on, you know, from those 30 years, put it up thinking, well, maybe 50 people will sign up for this and, and thinking that would be great, you know, if I can educate 50 people. And 3,500 people signed up, Wow! Uh, which was really heartening to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a free class. Uh, nearly killed me, <laughs> just logistically. <laughs> um, but uh, it was very heartening to me because I thought, you know, I'm not alone in thinking we have to do more of this work. Mm-hmm. And now I think we were probably a little over 10,000 people who've taken that class. Wow. So, so, yeah, so it feels like there's a, and it's all word of mouth, you know, people tell other people and groups come together, churches are taking it together and then meeting in their um, uh, sanctuaries to, to, for the calls that we have. And so it's, it's taken on a life of its own. Um, and I, I felt that summer uh, a very deep sense of this is my work. You know, this is uh, coming back to this felt like coming home. This is I'm really good at this. I really want to to change people's minds around these issues uh, and build more inclusive communities. And so it just felt like coming home. And and, and so that's been fantastic. Yeah. Well, watch. And I know you've had a huge impact in that realm because I keep seeing your name popping up in different forums in these conversations. I uh uh, I actually did uh, the Building Bridges program here in Asheville, mm-hmm. it, which is a, a conversation about racism. It's a multi-week uh, get people together and let's talk and let's learn and talk about racism issues. And it was a huge eye-opener for me, and I'm sure it is for people taking your online class as well. That I mean, I grew up in Canada, so not to say there's no racism in Canada. Of course, there is, but it doesn't have the same history that it does here. Mm-hmm. So it was it was profoundly shocking and moving to me um, what uh, what has transpired and and just to hear from people of their own experiences. It's incredible, mm-hmm. and I think that you bringing that work forward is really a way for people to connect with. Uh, each other and with themselves to look at some of the the blind spots, like pretending that race doesn't exist by saying I'm colorblind. Or do you find that's the case that people really awaken to something in themselves? Oh, definitely. I, I mean, there, there. I had a an email not, not too long ago from a woman who said, "I'm 75 years old. I just finished the class. It changed my life, and I wish I had taken it 40 years ago." Wow. You know, so I love the fact that she's 75 and taking the class. Absolutely. You know, but um, but I, I think that the the hallmark of the, the work that I do is um, is to understand really deeply uh, how people learn and how people learn about what are difficult topics. 
in, I've seen enough diversity training that is kind of a, a hammer on the head approach mm -hmm. to know that, you know, we don't change. Uh, we sort of put our heel, heels deeper in the ground when people come at us with information like that. So it's a really rich dialogue that starts off with a, a, a great amount of time spent on how are we going to have this conversation together? What are, what are we going to, as a group, agree to do um, in this group that will enable all of us to learn? And I, I think that that's, you know, in a very fast-paced environment, a lot of people in corporate tr uh, training, for example, just want to go right to the details. Yeah. I don't think you can do that and, and not build. I think you have to build a safe learning environment. And that's one of the things that people talk about after the class um, just this this deep shared language, you know, that the groups have as a result of going through this shared experience. Um, and I, I think that that's important for all kinds of learning, but especially when you're dealing with, um, as you said, a lot of things that are unconscious for people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, a lot of people believe that they are, uh, that their intention and they, their intention is good when they say I'm colorblind until sure. they take the class. They don't really realize that negates an important part of the people around you, right. people of color, for example. Well, and, uh, you know, I, I did interviews with about 15 people of color. And basically, I think the thing that changes the participants in this class is hearing as you said, from building bridges is hearing the stories from people who have that lived experience. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm always intrigued by common threads that run through people's careers and, and you seemingly have two kind of, at least two or three kind of diverse threads operating. You're an author, you're a speaker, you give workshops, and you have this camp, which I, I, the 2018 theme, I think, is the courage to create. Mm -hmm. And so to, how do those two, how do those those many threads come together in a way that that feels like your feels like your life's work, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe they feel separate. But I'd, I'd love to hear from you about how those threads are are in your experience. Oh, I'd be interested to hear how you see them <laughs> in my experience. Yeah. But I'll start off. Yeah, um, sure. I I'm putting up a, a new um, website. I haven't had one for a number of years. Uh, it's just I've been so busy. It's one of the things that falls off the the to do list. But I started thinking uh, uh, really about this question that you've asked me. And one of the things that I understood is that the thread through all of my work is story. Um, it's the thread through the uh, the writing that I do. It's the it's the thread through the speaking that I do. So I created a um, kind of a model, and I'll try and pull it up so I can read it to you. But um, I created a model just to try and say, you know, at the core of all these things is story. It's the story of your own life and how you're creating that because you are creating your own story. Um, it's the story of uh, of organizations who are dealing with diversity and inclusion issues. So story became very, very important in the, in the, in that sort of schematic of what it is that I do. And as we go through, I'll try and, and pull that up and, and give you a little bit more detail about that. But 
Uh, I think that the, you know, we think we're made up of atoms, but we're actually made up of stories. Mm. Um, and one, one thing that I always talk about when I speak is the shortest distance between two people is a story. Yeah. So if I can get two people who see themselves on uh, possibly on different um, ends of a continuum, if I can have them hear each other's stories, then there's some hope, you know, of bridging the differences between them. So a lot of the diversity work is atypical in that way. Uh, it's experiential. It's getting people in front of each other to uh, share those stories. And once you see somebody as a as a as a who, you you really can't go back to seeing them as a what, which yeah. is where we start, you know, a category. Right. And um, I think story is the avenue for doing that. Well, yeah. I agree. I mean, stories are such a powerful way of connecting and we, we find universality in it. We find things that are common in that, mm -hmm. in that shared story. I, I'm interested how this, this thread is kind of hanging together with, with the, the camp because life is a verb camp from the people I know who've attended. It's so much about play and fun and you mm -hmm. know what does that got to do with diversity which is you know uh, often sad and difficult topics so how do you how do you see those hanging together in terms of story well i i think that diversity is not necessarily an ominous uh awful conversation though a lot of people see it that way i remember doing a session in florida and for executives, 12 of them, and they all of them came in and said, well, at least there are donuts. So <laughs> I, don't <think> it's something, <laughs> I don't think it's something that people look forward to. But what I do around diversity is quite different. Uh, it's really coming from a world of understanding, learning from the neck down, uh, the need for people to have an embodied experience rather than an intellectual experience. I mean, you know, truthfully, if we could solve uh, social justice and diversity and inclusion issues by talking about them, it would have been solved a long time ago because we've been talking about it for a very, very long time. Right. So, you know, there has to be a different approach to it. How, how am I engaging with other people is really the, the core of my work. What is the quality of engagement between me and another human being? Whether that person is seemingly like me or unlike me, um, and how can we, deepen the quality of engagement between people. So the work itself is playful. The work itself is, um, you know, can be very emotional and deep at the same time. But I, I think we discount as we become adults, we discount the, the role of play in learning. And we also discount the, the role of our bodies. You know, we, we, our bodies, as we get older, become just little mechanisms for carrying our huge brains around, <laughs> you know? Um, and so the work is really intended to not, not have people, uh, which is often done in, in diversity and honestly, in other kinds of training, go and hear things and take the notebook back to their cubicle and never look at it again. When you're talking about diversity and inclusion issues, these are, these are hot spots for a lot of organizations and people. And in order to be able to respond to a hot spot, you can't run to your cubicle and pull out the notebook and give data. It just doesn't work that way. So, you know, the work is really intended uh, with camp 
playing a, a role in that to have people physically engaged so that they have when they leave an embodied sense of the learning. Uh, they don't need the notebook in their cubicle. They, they get it. They have it inside of them. And um, so camp is, you know, a, a physical experience in terms of being in the same space, which we also discount that. It's great to be able to um, meet virtually, but there's just something about happening upon somebody on the path, you know, and having that conversation. So uh, it's it's kind of a, um, a, a two-level um, place, I think. You know, there's the there's the the individual piece, which is who am I in this community of people and how am I going to engage? Because I think how you engage in anything is how you engage in everything, you know? So there's that piece of personal learning, but also the larger learning of how can we as a society do a better job of living in community? What does that look like? What do people uh, need to do or not do in order to build healthier communities. And that's also a, a piece of camp and obviously a piece of what diversity and inclusion work is about as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned physicality and, and just being physically in connection with people. I, it just makes me think of um, a question that I have uh, for you, which is in this work that you're doing, I mean, there's so many different aspects to it. You have a family, all those things come into play. How do you maintain your energy for this work? Are there other things that you do, other practices that you do that help you be able to continue and and feel able to do so and inspired to do so? Oh, I have no bloody idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. I do have. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, I, I'm not too recently, but I went to my therapist, which I, I I think everyone should have one. Um, and he was asking me, because I had a hard time getting going on one project I was working on. He said, why Why did you take that project? Why are you doing that project? And I said, well, you know, frankly, I needed, it was a good uh, paycheck and I needed the paycheck. And he said to me something that was so interesting. He said, you know, that's a response from fear. Mm-hmm. What What is the real reason that you do this work? And it led me on this great conversation with him and also with myself about the fact that there is something deeper, you know, I mean, a paycheck is great, but were I not connected at a very uh, fundamental visceral level to working for social justice, for example, to um, living my most intentional, mindful life as much as possible, it doesn't always happen, were I not committed to that, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be doing this work. You know, I would do something simpler. I would do something um, just for the paycheck. And that that's not what I've chosen. So it was a great beginning of a conversation with myself about, okay, let's go back to the beginning. Why is it that this is my work in the world? Why is it that I feel I have something to offer in this work, um, in helping people see themselves as part of something larger in helping people build a healthy, mindful, intentional, playful communities uh, using camp as an example. I, I just think, you know, there are, um, there for me has to be that deeper connection 
to um, the belief that I have something to offer in that regard, that if I change one person's mind, which I know I have done, you know, over the 30 years I've been doing this work, mm -hmm. I've had a lot of um, really amazing stories told to me about the impact. Uh, if I weren't connected to that, that core need, I, I wouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of the practices, I have recently, after I had a heart attack in 2016, uh, and after, you know, decades of people telling me to do yoga, um, <laughs> I finally started a yoga practice. And for me, that yoga practice and the meditation that comes along with that has been core. You know, it's really been both physically um, uh, necessary for me, but also a, a clearing. You know, it's a, it's a clearing space for me because I have a million to-dos. You know, I have a million things that I want to try and accomplish. And so that helps settle my mind and helps me understand what the, the core of the work is, uh, as opposed to the busy work of the work. Um, that's been a great practice for me. Yeah. Well, I, I love that you talked about the reason that you do this work, because that's something that I think is so important in, uh, being an entrepreneur, whether whether it's mm -hmm. work of, of any kind, but absolutely being self-employed is things can be challenging at times and there are things you bump up against and the thing that can keep you going through all of that is clarity about the mm -hmm. impact of the work that you're doing. Why are you doing this? What, what does it mean for you and what does it mean for other people as well? Yeah. So yeah, it's a powerful exploration. Oh, it is, yeah. Is there, um, in, in all the work that you've done, is there, is there some personal trait that you have and uh, that has really been helpful in having the impact that you, that you have? If you had to pick one. Wow. Um. <laughs> or <laughs> say two or three if you want to, but. Well, the first thing that came to mind, honestly, was stubbornness. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, just this dogged, um, maybe it's resilience. I don't know if it's stubbornness or resilience, but this this ongoing belief that this is necessary work. And and also a bit of, well, if, if I don't do it, who will? Mm -hmm. You know, um, like this, I, I get this from a very personal place. And, uh, you know, I, I want to... Um, use those experiences to make a difference. So I, I, you know, I think resilience may be around, um, around that and stubbornness together. But the other thing that I think is that I, I have been told, and I don't know how this happens. Somebody asked me recently and I said, I have no idea, but that I build really safe places, spaces mm -hmm. for people to be really who they are, you know, to come as they are. And, I don't know what you would say that attribute is. Um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's in some ways driven by a calmness or a curiosity that when I'm, you know, facilitating or building a space, I don't have a preconceived notion of what, what's going to happen. I know what the arc of the story is that I want the group to uh, come to at some point, but I don't, I don't, uh, manage the 
where we go. You know, I, I allow what's going to happen. The, the phrase that I always use is I use what's in the room and what's in the room is different based on, you know, who's in the room. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know what that word would be, but there, there's a curiosity and a willingness to be surprised that I think some trainers and some facilitators are trained against surprise. They want to navigate yeah. so that nothing surprising happens so that they manage the learning, you know, well, there's, and a, I vulner- love- there's a vulnerability in just letting oh, the yeah. things unfold. Oh, yeah, there is because you have to be agile enough. Yeah. To go wherever they go. And, um, you know, and that's a learned skill set. I don't think that comes. I mean, I, I think you have to be in those situations and really learn how to. Um, I think of it like boxing where the boxers are are up on their toes right. so that they can move in either direction really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really, really helpful skill. Uh, not only in facilitation, but also in, in running your own business. You know, how, yeah. how can I <laughs> how can I navigate what's changing? And I, I, I think a lot of times as entrepreneurs, we we are circumstance driven uh, too much. You know, we're 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 following whatever is happening in the in the economy or socially. And I, I think there has to be going back to my answer about why, you know, there has to be this really clear intention so that when things get tough, when the economy tanks, for example, we can be intention driven and not just circumstance driven. You know, we can, we can keep going as opposed to say, okay, that's it. I got to close, close my business and go work somewhere else. Um, So being intention driven rather than circumstance driven, I think is another key asset for, for me anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think that, it goes back to what you were saying about, you know, the reason you do the work that becomes the driver when things mm-hmm. are, are when the circumstances are challenging or, um, and, and it's, it's easy to become reactive as an entrepreneur because you're, you're oh, always, yeah. you're always coming up against different situations. It's a constantly changing environment. Yeah. Well, Patty, is there um, a way in which this work that you've done for, 30 years. Is there a way in which it has changed you? Oh, there are a lot of ways that it's changed me. Um, you know, I, I think as, especially somebody who's, uh, in the dominant culture doing diversity and inclusion work, if I'm not willing to be changed by the experiences with people who are unlike me, then I just don't need to be doing the work. And, um, so the the ways in which I partner with people who are, for example, people of color to do this work, um, that's a that's a continual learning process for me. And I do have to be willing to have my worldview where I stand um, telling my story, to have that be open to uh, a story that is vastly different than my own and to really listen to that. Uh, I know when I did the interviews for the racism class, uh, was interesting because I, I consciously opened the conversation and then sat and listened to the stories of the people I was interviewing and rather than direct their story in a certain way. You know, I, I didn't want to be interrupting the stories of people of color because I think so often we don't listen. We 
we jump up with a flip chart and a marker and start solving things. You know, we don't, we don't really listen. We don't know what the issue is um, before we, we start with the flip chart. So it was interesting that one of the first people in the first class wrote and said, I don't know who did these interviews, but they're really lame. Like they're terrible because they don't ever ask any questions. (laughs) I I wrote back to say, I think that's the point, you know, can, can we open space to, simply listen and let whoever is telling us their story, take it where they want it to go, not where I want it to go. Um, Yeah. So I'm constantly changed by the stories of people around me. Yeah. I once heard someone describe a progressive as someone who's willing to have their mind changed, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a really great way of describing uh, an openness and a curiosity, as you've said uh, that that's yeah. a trait you have really strongly of curiosity. What's what's up with this person? What's their experience, and and mm-hmm. how can I learn from it? What can I learn from it? Right. Yeah. Right. Well, Patty, to to kind of bring things to a close, I am uh, now doing this rapid round of three questions for on the podcast. So, are you are you game to answer some questions? Quick, quick I am. questions. Okay. I am. Great. Okay. So. What's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Um, with impact comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think having impact is not a, uh, a discrete uh, event. I think it's an ongoing event. Um, I think those two things would be the, the largest pieces. And also I think having personal boundaries Mm -hmm. um, becomes really important when you're having an impact that's larger than yourself, you know, to be able to protect what is personal about your own work or your own life um, relative to the work, which I I have not done that well. So I offer that as a cautionary tale. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's an important aspect because there, there needs to be some sense of self in that work that gets retained as well. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So next question, what is the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? And I love that you, I can hear you scribbling and answer the questions. This is what writers do. We think on paper. <laughs> so I love yeah. that. <laughs> um. You know, I, I laugh sort of when I'm listening to this because I'm taking a business class right now. And I said to my husband last night, how I have stayed in business for 22 years, I have <laughs> no idea because I've done none of this stuff. You know, I've, I've really done none of this stuff. Um, uh, I think I've followed my intuition. I've listened to my intuition and I've... Um, played Hamlet as opposed to getting the audience to love me. I've really uh, separated myself from the need to be loved or liked or, um, you know, paid or whatever to, to focus on what do I find interesting? What do I think will have the greatest impact? So I think it's that, um, that personal area of focus. Mm -hmm. Great. And the last question, what's, your, if, if you were to give advice to another business owner who's asking themselves, I, I want to, they're saying, I want to have impact. I want to make a positive contribution. I want to make a difference. What piece of advice or insight would you offer them to help them do that? 
absolutely have no problem answering this question. <laughs> I think that um, I mentioned it earlier, but this idea of playing from a simple, from a, sorry, from a single intention is really, really powerful. Um, and I think we don't often recognize or understand or want to see how much of the time we're operating from a split intention. So a split intention is a, a corporation saying to me, we want to make a, a level playing field for all our employees. Um, while the real intention is we want to be on the fortune magazine, best businesses to work list, you know, uh, that's a split intention and you, you cannot do either one of those. Well, when you're splitting your, your attention in that way. So, Operating from a, a single intention is one thing that, uh, the main thing that I would offer. Well, Patty, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and, and stories and uh, the, the way that you've navigated your career around story and the quality of engagement that people have with each other. Um, it's, uh, I know that your work has had a hugely profound effect on so many people. So I so appreciate you coming to have this conversation with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I always learn about my own work by talking about it with other people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity. Well, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, probably by email. Uh, support at pattydie.com p-a-t-t-i-d-i-g-h dot com or looking at the life is a verb camp dot com website um, that will give you information about camp and, and give you a way to reach me as well great thank you and thank you Patty for the work you're doing in the world it's so valuable well thank you I appreciate it join us for more episodes Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.